I got lost to preach. Can I just start? Here we go. Last uh, uh, two weeks ago, we started a new series in, a, in an incredible little letter here in the back of our Bibles. It's uh, called the First Epistle of John or First John. If you have your paper books, you can slide all the way to the back. It's almost all the way back there. Uh, if you're uh, looking in your phones, type First John. It'll show up. Uh, but we are uh, studying what is the first of three letters that John writes probably to a group of churches that he was uh, as an apostle of Jesus Christ uh, over top of in leadership. And he's uh, writing to encourage them, writing to inform them and instruct them. He's writing to uh, confront some of the falsehoods that were rising up in them. And so we're just studying this first letter together. It's already been uh, just a uh, a boon in my own spiritual development. I was going to try to hustle through this, you know, doing chunks of verses at a time. I got to last week and I was like, we can only do one uh, because uh, what it had to teach us was so weighty, so profound. Uh, John writes in his first chapter here in First John, he says, um, this is the message that we have heard from him. This is John repeating what Jesus had instructed him to say. Uh, this is the message we heard from him and declare to you. Here it is. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If you uh, uh, have had the privilege of reading through all of the scriptures at some point, you're going to see this theme come up again and again. God isn't just the giver of light. He's just not just the, the beacon of light uh, that he is for us. He is light. He personifies light. And in him is no darkness at all. If you didn't have a chance to listen last week, we talked about that at great length, going back to the uh, first book of our Bibles in Genesis, uh, reading there uh, that the first words of creation were, let there be light. And uh, in, in saying those uh, words, uh, God brought to a, 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 an existence that was null and void and dark, um, a fullness and uh, a, a form and and his light. It's it just, there's so much here. But uh, I was supposed to preach last week this second part of the sermon, which is the clarification. We're going to do that now. What's up? Uh, and so uh, John, as he writes, kind of continues in this theme of God being light. And then he says, and, and don't get it twisted. It's in the Greek. It's what he says. But he says, don't get it twisted. It's, it's, it's not uh, uh, just this simple statement that we can kind of be like, yeah, that's cool. It has a, a, a profound impact on our lives and how we live. He's going to basically point out three lies uh, that people have when it comes to understanding that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then he's going to give three corresponding truths to those three lies. He's going to speak in terms of if we say, that's how he starts each of the lies, if we say this, we are liars. If we say this, we are liars. If we say this, we make God a liar. It kind of ratchets up at the end. But then he'll say, but if we do this, we walk in the light. Excited to share them with you. Here we go. Lie number one. The first lie is this. The lie that we often as humans tell ourselves in view of God being light is this. I can walk in light and in darkness at the same time. I can straddle both worlds. I can have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. People actually believe this. Why do I say they believe this? They might not say that this is true, but I, I think down in their hearts they believe it's true because they, they actually choose to do this all the time. Anybody ever seen me do this before? Here, God, here's my life, right? Here's everything in my life. Oh, what's this? That's nothing. Don't worry about that. Here's my life. And we think we can do this and have this at the same time. 
John writes it like this in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is that we walk in the light, while we walk in the darkness, what's it say? We're liars. We lie. And we do not practice the truth. That Greek word there for practice the truth is poieo. He's basically saying, if you just literally translate in Greek, uh, we don't do the truth. We don't do truth. We live in a lie and we fail to do truth. John says, hey man, you can't uh, experience life in two places at the same time. You can't be in the dark and be in the light concurrently. Uh, Teenagers have long been duping their parents with phone calls saying I'm in one place while they're in another. I know no one here has ever done that. (laughs) But uh, uh, back in the 80s when I was growing up, it was easier to do uh, because we didn't have these cell phones that we have now, right, where there's actually apps on them that tell you exactly where the person holding that phone is situated, right? And so now when your son calls, you'd say, hey, mom, I'm over at Corey's. We're just, you know, playing video games, da, 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 da. You can actually scroll up to the app and be like, huh, that's weird, honey. Your phone's at the mall. I didn't give you permission to go there. Why don't you come home now? I think God's uh, had this ability. I know he has uh, since he's made us. I I know he came into the garden and and asked this question, where are you guys? It wasn't (laughs) that he didn't know. He was just trying to set up this conversation uh, that, that they went on to have there in Genesis chapter 3. God knows where you are, and what he says about where you are is that you can't inhabit the darkness and the light, even though you think you can, even though you lie to yourself and say, I got this. We cannot be in two places at one time. He says, if we say we have fellowship, that's that Greek word koinonia, that's that, you know, not just kind of, you know, uh, acquaintanceship with God. It's, it's, it's we're hanging with them. We're, we're on mission with them. Koinonia is this, this tight, uh, arms-linked, life-together existence. He says, if we, have, uh, if we say we have fellowship or koinonia with God, uh, yet we walk. This is a new Greek word, peripateo. Everybody say peripateo. Not bad, pretty good. Peripateo is, is a compound word. Peri is kind of like... Uh, you know, like perimeter, like it's around. Peri means around. And pateo is the Greek for walk. Uh, and so uh, it's not just kind of straight line walk. It's, it's uh, kind of more of uh, hanging out in a space. You know, kind of uh, getting the feel for where my, you know, life is and, and what environment I'm inhabiting. It, it goes to behavior and lifestyle. And, and so when we say, hey, me and God are tight, uh, and I can be over here and, and do whatever I want in this uh, walk of darkness, and we're cool. God says to us through John, nope, not true. Now, let me set some hearts hopefully at ease. Uh, I don't think John is speaking in terms of salvation here, and so some of you are wondering, oh, no, when I sin, I no longer have fellowship with God at all, and I need to get saved over and over and over again. I don't think that's what he's talking about. In fact, John is writing to believers here, who are already in life with Christ, and he's saying, hey, listen, don't get it twisted. Even though by grace you have been saved through your faith and, and, and that won't be taken from you, you can still live in this life with Christ uh, that has been given to you in your salvation apart from Christ in the darkness that you choose. This statement's a lie for a couple reasons. Spiritually speaking, 
Uh, when we uh, be, you know, believe that we can live in darkness and light, we lie to ourselves because what darkness does is it um, blocks out the light. The light continues to exist. It's just in our darkness, we don't see it. We've been wearing these for two years on over our mouths, right? Uh, but I, I'm going to use it for this purpose today. And this is what sin does to us. I've got to stay back from the edge here. Anyway, uh, this is what sin does to us. It just... It, it blinds us to what God's best is in our life. And so uh, we may think, ah, I totally see the light and I totally know what I'm supposed to do and, I, and I'm in there and I'm doing it. But if we are in the dark, we are faced away from God. We are unable to see his light in certain areas and therefore robbed of his best in our existence. Hard to do with glasses on. Huh. Practically speaking, um, we can pretty much tell when someone's living this lie, right? Because actions speak louder than words. Um, perhaps um, you've grown up in houses where uh, you know, the, 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 the Christian side of you comes out as soon as the doors open once you hit the church parking lot, right? And, and, and everybody smiles at everybody because we're at church now. And I'll go to church this service and I'll serve at this service and praise the Lord and hallelujahs while I'm talking with everybody. But as soon as the doors shut, in your vehicle, and you head back to the house, the real people in that family come out. And mom starts yelling at dad, dad starts yelling at mom, and mom and dad start yelling at kids, and everybody's going crazy, and you get back to your house, and it's as if God does not exist. He's just there for Sundays, just on display. And I, you know, we convince ourselves, I can do that. I'll give him my three hours every weekend, and I'll live like I want with the rest. And John says, nope, it's not how this works. When we say that that's the case, we lie. What this ultimately leads to is, is us kind of downgrading the uh, effect and the importance of, of understanding our sin. Like we could say, sin doesn't matter. Grace will cover it. It's cool, man. Anybody ever done that? It's easier to get, permission, or get forgiven than to get permission. Anybody ever done that one? It's an axiom that we kind of run you know, life by in America. Hey, I don't know if this is okay, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll be okay, you know, once we talk it through and stuff. And so I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And, and people have this lower view of righteousness. They truly believe that they can have both ways, that their connection with God uh, is unaffected despite their choice for sin. Again, grace will cover this. This is my, this is my favorite one. People kind of come up with this excuse. It, it, like, I've, I've heard people actually, without saying this, say this. As long as I do enough good things it'll balance out my bad things. Like we're on some kind of karmic continuum in the Christ life. We're not. It's not a, it's not a scale that we kind of try to balance out. The truth about us is that apart from the grace of our Father in Jesus Christ, we are all bad, hot mess, no hope. Everybody with me on this? And so for us to, to leave or to eschew his light and to head back for this darkness, this doesn't make any sense at all. Hmm. Some people have actually argued, you know, which, we don't, you know if, if, uh, if grace comes as a result of the existence of sin and grace is this great, amazing thing, wouldn't it be better for us to sin as much as possible so that grace could be on greater display? This is actually an argument that Paul had to confront in the Roman church. He writes this in chapter 6 of his letter there. He says, hey, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just go for it, right? 
Because then as we sin, God's grace comes into play and everybody's like, wow, he's so great. Is that what we should do? In our darkness, we're like, can we do that? And God says, no. The next line is a Greek word. That's, the first word there in verse 2 is by no means in English. It's the Greek word meganoita. It's big no, heck no, whatever you want to put in front of no there. Are you with me? It is emphatically no. That's not how this works. And he gives a reason. How can we who died to sin choose to still live in it? He goes on and he talks about baptism in the next verses, about how uh, baptism is this picture of us dying into, in, in, in the old life that we had without Christ, dying to sin and being resurrected in the same way that Christ died on Good Friday and rose again on, on uh, Resurrection Sunday. It's the same picture. We've, we've put to death who we were in sin because Christ uh, paid the price on the cross for us, and we've been resurrected to this new life with him. Why would we go back to the grave? Why would we hustle back to the tomb? This is preposterous. Ooh, I used preposterous in a sermon. That's good. It's crazy. So no, we don't go back here for the sake of here. We stay away from here because we've been raised to new life with Christ. In John's age, uh, these churches had been infiltrated by false teachers. You're going to see that as we go through this letter. It's going to become more and more pronounced as he uh, more directly confronts their, their falsehoods. And, and one of the falsehoods that they uh, belonged to probably was a, a belief called Gnosticism. It was this idea that, you know, the, the spiritual realm existed above the physical realm. There was one particular branch of it called Doceticism. Everybody say Doceticism. Again, you guys are killing it. That's great. Uh, it's this uh, word that essentially means, uh, you know, separate or dual natures. And, and it, it's kind of like the Matrix. Anybody seen the Matrix? Okay, sci-fi. Before there was sci-fi, doceticism. Um, the spirit realm exists over here. And as long as you believe the right things and say the right things and, and uh, you know, are in the right things in the spirit realm, uh, this other part of life, this physical realm, uh, is, is yours to do with as you please. And, and, and what happens here does not affect what happens over here. And if you read that in a textbook like I did in seminary, you'd be like, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense, especially as you read the scriptures and, and, and God makes it very clear that our, our whole lives, our, our hearts, our minds, our, our flesh, our, our bodies, everything goes into the life that we were meant to have with him, Right? But again, we're just as susceptible as those early Gnostics and Docetics to kind of create up this dichotomy, you know, in life. You know, that church I mentioned earlier, or that family I mentioned earlier that has church day and the other days. I'll live this way here in front of the other believers, and I'll live this way when they can't see me, and it'll be fine. Huh. Uh, why does he bring this up? Because as we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 2, he loves these people. He wants their, God's very best for them. He calls them his dear little children. Anybody got, a, anybody got kids? Anybody got kids in here? You love your kids? Three of you? Okay. For you three, no. For everybody who loves their kids, you want their, your best, God's best for your kids? Yeah, my kids are all grown up. I still want God's best for them. I pray for it every day, Right? John, the spiritual father of these churches, says, I want what's best for you. That's why I'm telling you about these lies. If you persist in these lies, these falsehoods, it's going to wreck you. 
It's going to wreck your life. You can't bear the weight of two lives. And you can't believe that you can live in darkness, even if it's hidden from everybody else, and, and truly uh, you know, please the God who is in the light. Now, how many times have we seen this come to roost in a family where you know, some secret sin uh, came to light, an affair, uh, you know, a, a, a nefarious dealing financially, something that, that brings kind of all kinds of conflict into a, a family's existence, and it just robs everybody of the joy and the love that they're meant to experience in the light with their God, right? How many times in a church have there been a, a pastor like me standing up in front of people, and there but for the grace of God go I, let me be very clear, but a pastor like me standing up in front of people, preaching the light and living in the dark as soon as he gets off the stage. And those things come to light. And those are not insurmountable by the grace of God. Sins can be forgiven. Lives can be restored. Who's grateful for that? Amen. Me too. But the cost still rests in those moments of revelation when things come to the light. Oh, that we would just forego the darkness and cling to the light, it would save us so much hassle and hurt. And that's why he gives us the first truth in response to this first lie. He says, in essence, two things. The first one is this, walking in the light opens me up to better relationships. Look what verse seven says. <clears throat> if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Uh, this is an interesting track that John goes on. In verse six, he says, if we say that we walk or that we have fellowship with God. He's speaking about God, right? But we walk in darkness, uh, we are liars, and, and the truth is not in us. We don't do the truth. Well, here he says, but if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, you'd think he'd say we have fellowship again with God. And I'm certain, you know, certain that he is uh, including our fellowship with God in his understandings of this. But he goes more uh, uh, you know, on this plane in his explanation of, of the good things that come from walking in the light. He says, we have fellowship with each other. And he's basically just bringing to light what I talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, we talked about marriage and how if two people who are uh, in a marriage together were on the uh, corners of a triangle and then God was up here, as they move towards God in their own personal lives, um, the axiom is, is that they get closer to each other. And it just stands to reason, if you and I are living in the light, we are a way better hang. We are way more uh, productive and, and you know, uh, um, honoring in our relationships than when we're not. It just makes sense. When you're a jerk, relationship shuts down. When you are good and right and loving and a servant to those that you're in relationships with, those relationships flourish. And so, yeah, John says, listen, man, if you can stay out of the dark, stay out of the grips of, of the darkness and, and choose the light, it's going to make things on this plane better in your relationships. He goes on, he gives a second part of this first truth. He says, walking in the light lets me become and remain clean. Look at what it says at the end of verse seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Someone say, thank you, God. Thank you for giving us forgiveness, for leading us out of darkness and taking us from death and giving us life instead. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Man, 
What an amazing, powerful truth. It's, it's at the heart of what we are as Christians. Dead without him, alive with him. Broken and dark and dirty without him. Pure. In the light. Healed. Because of his blood shed for us and its cleansing properties. That word cleanses there is the Greek word katharizo. It's from whence we get our English word catharsis. Uh, catharsis is this purging or this cleansing. It's this aha moment. It's this coming out of something and into something better. That's what happens when you and I walk into the light. We're able to identify, confess, and repent of our sin. And it's only through these things uh, that we are truly set free from the grips of the darkness that would hold us back in life with Christ. I got a uh, I want to thank whoever built this building in, in my office. They saw fit to put a bathroom in it. Uh, and uh, yeah, there you go. And uh, there's this big fluorescent light on the ceiling of that bathroom uh, that is basically right over top of whoever's standing in front of the mirror that's over the sink. And on the regular, yours truly walks into that bathroom and has this reaction. Oh, because for the first time that day, I've realized that whatever I had for lunch has been splotched right here. Anybody been in that situation? Oh, look, chicken fried chicken. Now yeah, there it is. I mean, there's enough of it there that you can actually identify the dish just by looking at it. And I've gone through my afternoon, meeting after meeting, talking with people. No one said a thing. Right? It's like when someone's got something hanging out of your nose, do I tell them, right? You don't, as far as I can tell, you don't. You're good. You're fine. But I've had all these meetings, and it's only now that I've stepped into the bathroom, taken a look at myself, and had the light shine on my situation that I've been like, oh, right? Would it surprise you to know that I have lots of shirts just hanging in the closet in my office for just such an occasion? And then probably at least once a week, I come to work in one shirt, and I leave work in another shirt, and I'm guessing most of my fellow employees are like, no, oh, you blew it again at lunch. There it is. But that light is what makes that identification and that cleansing and that change possible. I don't know if you've experienced this when you go to the doctors, but they got lights on every instrument they use. They got one for your ears, one for your eyes, one for your nose, right? You go to the dentist, the first thing they do is they lay you down in that recliner and they just shove a huge light in your face, right? And I know it's supposed to be for the mouth, but it's blinding. And why do they have all these lights? Because as physicians who are trying to help you with what's not working in your worlds, in your lives, in your bodies, they gotta be able to see what they need to fix. And that's what God's light does. It helps us see what he needs to fix. He's a good, good father. He allows me to become, and not just become clean, but remain clean. The, the Greek text or the Greek uh, um, tense, sorry, of uh, catharsis or catharizo, which is cleanses, is a, is a present tense. That means it's ongoing. So we could actually read this verse. The blood of his Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Isn't that great? Continually and continually. That's good news for those of us who habitually sin. Hands, anybody? Do it all the time. Don't want to. I'm like Paul. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, do them all the time. But isn't it great that we have a God 
who when we come to him with penitent hearts, not just throw away sorries, sorry, Lord, did it again, but Lord, I don't know why I keep doing this, but I did it again. Can you scrub me up one more time? Can you purge me one more time? Free me one more time? Will you do that for me? Yes, he says. What did he tell his disciples when they asked, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive somebody? The custom at the time was seven. And Jesus says, I know that's what you've heard, but I tell you, 70 times seven. And everybody in the room was like, good. After 490, this bugger's out of my life, right? But that's not what Jesus was teaching. He was speaking hyperbolically. He was saying, hey, man, you always forgive. You know why? Because my Father in heaven always forgives. If people ask for it, he gives it. That should make you want to dance a little bit right there. Lie number two. The second lie is this. It was actually being taught in these churches that John was writing to. Sin is not my nature. For all you hip-hop fans from the 90s, I am not naughty by nature. Some people got it. Uh, it says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This is different from what he's going to say next. He's going to say, I have never sinned. What he's saying here is, I have no sin. My, my nature in and of itself is not sinful. It's coming from this Gnosticism, this asceticism that basically says, listen, spiritual world, that's one thing. Physical world, that doesn't matter. And, and so sins in the physical world, they don't you know, cause you know, any kind of consequence in the spiritual realm. He's like, no, that's not true. And if I asked everybody here, uh, is sin our nature or is sin not our nature? Most of you would say, yeah, I've been around the church long enough, been around the Bible long enough. I know that sin is our problem and that Jesus came to fix our problem and that's why he's our savior and why we need him so bad. But you know what we do instead of just, you know, completely uh, saying that sin is not my nature? We, we love to lessen our sins so that we don't feel as bad about them and we somehow think, yeah, darkness and light, I can have both. You and I do that, right? Are you hard on other people's sins and easy on yours? If you are, you're human. Because that's what we love to do. We love to see the speck in someone else's eye while the board sticks out of ours, right? And so if we can find someone worse than us, you know, uh, if we can point to some atrocity that's greater than ours, Ukraine, you know, the murderer on the, on the front page, if we can go across the street and say, you know my neighbor Bob, now there's a mess. We somehow feel better about ourselves. And this is so ooh, dark because it's, it's our adversary's way of, of convincing us, yeah, you're fine. You don't have to work on the parts of your lives that aren't aligned with God and his light. Just be good enough. Because you know what? It's good enough. And John says, no, man, it's a lie. He could, could have taken, you know, uh, his writers or his readers, excuse me, to, to all kinds of places in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Paul wrote to the Romans again in chapter 3 of that book, and, and he just kind of rattles off a, a bunch of quotations from the OT. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there are none righteous, no, not one. In verse 11 of, of Romans chapter 3, he says that no one seeks God or even begins to understand him. He kind of culminates that whole argument in Romans 3, 23, where he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's, he's being very clear. Yeah, 
Our nature is not God. Sin has caused that in us. And so it's so uh, good that John moves on to the second truth, which is kind of an echo of the first. In verse 9, he says, these things, confession absolves past sin and prevents future ones. He writes it like this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who's heard that one before? Anybody? Pretty common if you've been around the church. It's one of our great hang our hat on verses. It explains the transaction that takes place. God's forgiveness comes at a condition. It's our confession. It's the payment that we give to him, in essence, for his forgiveness to be conferred on us. We have to agree with him that we're in the dark, from the dark, that what we've chosen is the dark, and that uh, it's wrong. It goes against him and his light and the things that he has for us. Like I said earlier, we identify, we confess, we repent, and then his forgiveness is conferred. His forgiveness has this, this, this great two-part uh, you know, kind of uh, effect on our lives. Uh, in his just, uh, justice, in his justness, he gives us our forgiveness, and it, uh, it, it, it's our, the forgiveness of our past sins. And so usually when we think of forgiveness, we think of everything that's happened in the past. But twice here, John brings up the cleansing that happens uh, in, in our lives that, that takes away the unrighteousness that caused us to experience these past sins. Just soak in this for a second. God's forgiveness, God's um, you know, provision to us in his forgiveness does not just um, close the door and absolve us of past sins. It doesn't just reconcile us to the Father in our present existence with him. It does this. It cleanses us from unrighteousness and prepares us for a life in the light with him that we have not experienced in this area before. Isn't that great? Loves us, enough, loves us enough to forgive us of what has separated us from him, but loves us even more to prepare us for life with him anew. I golf a little bit, uh, and maybe you've seen a golf tournament. Uh, when the ball hits the green and it's finally on the putting surface of a, of a golf course, um, golfers are allowed to take a little coin and mark the ball and then pick up that ball and take a rag. Usually the pros throw it to their caddy to do this but the rest of us have to do it ourselves. And uh, you pick up a rag, and you just start looking at your ball. I don't know if you could see this one. I tried to put some dirt on it. There's some big chunks. This happens uh, when you're playing golf. Sometimes the, the fairways are wet, and so the ball will hit the ground and get mud on it. Sometimes you're not as accurate as you want it to be, so it goes in the woods or in other places where there's more dirt to pick up. And so you finally get it to the green, and it's like, oh, man. I mean, this is a problem. If I'm going to roll this on this grass into that hole... And these chunks are on here. Uh, it's not going to roll in a way that's true. And so you take your rag and you catharizo. That's what that word is there in verse 9. You purge. You cleanse. Uh, you, you set free the ball to be the, the round orb that it's meant to be. So that when you hit the next shot, it rolls true. Isn't that a good father of ours? That when he cleanses us, he doesn't just take care of our past and set us right in our present. He prepares us, if we'll allow him, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And to experience life rolling true in the direction that he would have us to go. Third lie. This is a big one. I have never sinned. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, 
If you're laughing at me, that's a huge lie for me. Uh, but for anybody to say I have never sinned is just a major monster lie. Verse 10. Again, John confronting the false teachings that are present in this church. If we say we have not sinned, we are just lying ourselves. He says we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Whoa. Everybody feel kind of the, the stakes go up a little bit there? Like when you and I have the audacity to say, no, we're good. I can live in the darkness and the light. Uh, I've never sinned. I don't have any sin in my nature. Sin's not a problem. We're not just being liars ourselves. We're saying, God, you're a liar. Why? Because over and over in his word, he has revealed to us the exact opposite. We're all a hot mess. Every one of us. Uh, Solomon wrote it this way in his um, you know, poem uh, of the Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher. It says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That kind of covers it, right? Nobody. And God inspired him to say that. And so when we say we don't sin, we make a liar out of God. John gets all nurturing as chapter 2 opens. He says in verse 1 there, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He, he, he does a couple things there. First of all, kids, I love you guys. I want what's best for you. We talked about that. But he's also, in his phrasing, basically uh, allowing for the fact that you guys are going to mess up. I, I'm, I'm telling you these things so that you won't as much, so that you'll get better at living in the light and not returning to the dark that you were saved from. And then he gives us the third truth. The third truth is this, that Jesus defends us by dying for us. I don't know if you've picked this up in all the truths. They, they basically center around um, the, the role of Jesus in our darkness. He, he cleanses us, forgives us. Now here he's shown to be our defender because he has been the one who sacrificed for our sake. Look at what it says at the end of verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, or perhaps we could rephrase, let's not rewrite the Bible, but when you do sin, and uh, you have, we have an advocate with the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, this word advocate is another Greek word. One more, paraclete. Everybody say paraclete. Paraclete is this word that means the one who comes alongside, almost always in Scripture, especially in John's writings in his gospel. When he uses this word, he's referring to another member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was talking to his disciples and saying, I need to go to Jerusalem, I need to give up my life, but don't worry, in, in three days I'll raise it back up. And they weren't picking up what he was putting down. He would talk about how he would be leaving to go and prepare a place for them, and they, they were just alarmed at that. And he said, listen, guys, don't worry about it. I'm going to send you a helper, capital H in your Bibles. That's the, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and, 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 and he's going, in, in, in the absence of my physical presence, he's going to be God's influence and helper to you as you live life. So almost always this word is used of, of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but here John chooses to take it and use it to describe Jesus. He does so because the paraclete is also a word that was used in the courts of ancient time. Uh, a defense lawyer 
was a paraclete, someone who would come alongside a guilty person and seek to defend him in court. And so it is that Jesus is our paraclete, our defender, when it comes to God and us being in life together, the Father and us being reconciled one to another. Look what it says in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one can condemn you or I. Why? Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. Through his death and resurrection, he has become our defender, and he sits at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, that means that he's praying for us and asking his Father for things on our behalf, but it also means that when our adversary, who is an accuser and a liar himself, comes to the Father like he did with Job and says, you know what, Job would just, if you just, you know, let me at him, Job would just curse your name and die. And, and God said, all right, you know, and, and the story of Job ensues. But, but our, it, it basically gives us this proof, this idea that our adversary comes before the Heavenly Father and says, hey, you know, that guy, Matt, I mean, he's a mess. And there's no way he should enter your kingdom. There's no way that, you know, you, you should justify him. And Jesus says, hold on there, Lou, Sefer. He says, Father, I know Matt. More importantly, Matt knows me. By faith in me, he has been made clean. I'm the righteous one. So he's good, not because he's good, but because he's looked to me and I am perfect. So I got him. Matt's with me. Matt's mine. And so Matt's ours. That's the picture that I see. Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, has become our defense attorney. He should be on all the billboards that we, you know, drive past on 75 and 275. He should be up there because he's the ultimate defender of humankind. He's not just our defender. He's our, the one who, through his sacrifice, made our defense possible. Look what it says in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. It says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I know, I know you guys just wear out this word propitiation. You probably used it five or six times already today, right? I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I throw out propitiation. You know, sometimes the Bible gives us words that aren't common to our vernacular. Propitiation is a word uh, that was uh, used in, in the ancient times uh, in an age where uh, most of the religions were built around a sacrificial system. Uh, a propitiation in its, uh, you know, perhaps clearest, clearest understanding is, is a gift that's uh, given to remove wrath. It's a, a peacemaking gift, an offering that brings two parties back together. So, fellows, when you're a jerk in the morning and you know that you were a jerk in the morning and you make the special stop on the way home to grab those flowers and you walk in, tail between your legs and head down and you say, honey, I am so sorry. Those are a propitiation that you're offering your bride. And depending on how bad the morning was, your wife uh, might say, more flowers, <laughs> or that's okay. I know you weren't yourself. Let's talk it through. Uh, but the beginning is the gift, right? 
And so when we talk about Jesus as our gift, we're not just talking about the grace that he is. He is an amazing gift. We don't deserve him. We can never earn him. Everybody with me? But he's a gift with effect. His gift was his life. And he died and gave himself as the rightful cost of bringing us back into relationship with the Father. He paid the price. He became the gift that brokered peace between us and God. Three lies. I can do darkness and light all at the same time. I am not naughty by nature. I am not sinful in my nature. And I've never sinned. We may not tell them in those words, but we are prone to them in some form or some fashion. Oh, may we today understand the power and the depth of the darkness that we sometimes choose and how it not just offends the God who saved us and brought us out of darkness into light, but it affects the relationships and the lives that we live here on this plane. May we be as serious about sin as our God is. And when it happens, because it will, may we cling to the truths. When I walk in the light as he is in the light, I got better relationships with people. When I walk in the light as he is in the light, I can see the mess that's in my life. And by his grace, I can be free from it. In the light, I can become and remain clean. And in the light, I am constantly aware of the goodness of my God to me in Jesus. He's my defender and he's my propitiation, the gift that God has given me so that I can be reconciled to him. That's my prayer for us, that we'll live life that way. And some of you are sitting here and you haven't even started life that way. You're still kind of out on who Jesus is. You, you, you've been hesitant because you've got all these arguments. Listen, I'd love to spend some time talking to you, either today or some other time, so that you can get over those roadblocks and begin this life in the light. But for the many of us who sit here right now, and we've already made our peace with God through faith in Jesus, I just want us to, to be, in fact, let's just do it. Bow your heads, here we go. I want you to take your hands and put them on your laps, just palms up. And I want you to, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want you to picture your life there, all of it. And I want, by the Spirit's uh, power, for you to just uh, be able to scroll through the areas of your life where you're at least prone to darkness. Maybe you're <laughs> very much aware that you are living in this darkness. But whatever those things are, here's what I want you to pray this morning. God, drag me into your light. Hold me there. Free me from these things that would destroy me in my own life and in the relationships that I have. Help me to walk in the light as you are in the light. Thanks for forgiving me. Help me to see my sin and confess it to you so that I can receive your forgiveness. Grant me your grace, Father, to walk in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? In the church that I grew up in, Caribou, Maine, we close every service with the same song. I'll be honest with you, I never really liked it. It's an old hymn, it's got weird words in it, but it captures what these verses have taught us today. 
and says, just as I am, without one plea. But your blood was shed for me, and now you're bidding me to come to me, come to thee. So, Lamb of God, I come. I want your forgiveness. I want to live in your light. Let's sing that as we close this morning. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou Walk in the light as he is in the light. God bless you as you do. Have a great week.